Well, hello again. Last week you had the opportunity to look at one of the greatest passages in all the Bible, especially the, uh, the linchpin of the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, known as the famous kenosis passage. For in that passage we see that Christ Jesus, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, but He rather emptied Himself of that and took on the form of a man. God became a man. How can that be? And what it's prompted us to do is to use that chapter sort of as a springboard into a greater investigation of the person and work of Jesus Christ found not just in Philippians, but throughout the whole Word of God. We're going to take the lens of the camera away from a close scrutiny of Philippians and move back to more of a panorama of the Lord Jesus Christ as He is revealed from Genesis to Revelation, all in 35 minutes. So we're going to do our best to uh, attempt to accomplish that and take a look uh, at this opportunity and ponder the person of Jesus Christ. See Him in His fullness. Ask all the hard questions as, who is this Lord Jesus? When, when I think of Christ, and when I was preparing, I, 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 a few of the, the common scenes came to my mind, all, frankly, from the, from the Gospels, the whether it be the, the babe in swaddling clothes or perhaps his baptism by his cousin John. His first sermon is recorded in Luke 4 when he spoke from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Upper room, night before his horrific crucifixion, and then, of course, the, the glorious resurrection. And those are good. I want to expand the boundaries, the borders of those scenes and add dozens more as we take a look biblically at the full person of Jesus Christ as recorded in the scripture. Years ago, Life App Magazine asked the question, I'd like to change it to the present tense, who is he? This magnificent being recorded in the scripture, we're going to spend some time getting to know him a little bit more closely, a little bit more fully. Christology is really our topic as we take a look at this subject. It is technically a biblical overview of the second person of the Trinity, We're not going to focus too much on the Father. We're not going to focus too much on the Spirit. We're not going to focus too much on the the Godhead or the Trinity Himself, but more the point man of the Trinity, sort of the darling of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, and take a look at Him. Moreover, we're going to ask the question, why? The answer to the question of why should we study Christology, this full breadth of study, is that Jesus Christ is really the lens. He is the window through which we can understand God. God is by nature invisible. He is by nature infinite. So the invisible and the infinite somehow had to become in form and finite so that we could somehow grasp it. For the invisible and infinite is just too much for us to handle. This morning, my goal is to not overwhelm us with TMI, too much information, but I do hope that we're all overwhelmed properly by the person of Jesus Christ. He is overwhelming in his full presentation. And I hope that we see that as we study this particular little study in the study of Jesus Christ. However, the problem studying Christ is it's not easy. First of all, we learn a lot by comparing things to that which we already know. Jesus is unique. We only know of him fully as recorded in the scripture. And he's presented there as a God man who came and died for the sins of you and me and was raised from the dead. There's no other story like that that we can compare. 
He's the only begotten God, the only begotten Son of God. He's the unique, the one of a kind. And secondly, one of the things that make it difficult to study the person of Jesus Christ is that there's a lot to cover. Theologians have identified 10 different dimensions. Don't worry, I've sent out for some pizzas. We'll be out of here by two or three, I promise you. But really over the next 35 minutes, we're going to go over these aspects and take a look at this Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God says, in, in, as he writes through Paul in Colossians, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. In the same book, he says, in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. John says it more succinctly, that Christ is the explanation of God. If we want to understand God, if we want to get God, we got to understand Christ. we got to get him. And so I'm going to serve him up uh, in a a full way as I can and take a look, some more quickly than others, obviously, uh, the multi-dimensioned aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get into it. Um, this I was asked after the first service, this is on the PowerPoint, will be on the webpage. So you, you, there'll be a few you may have to leave behind because our goal is to spend most of our time up here, uh, not overwhelming us with verses, but rather just allowing this picture of Christ to be formed biblically as he is revealed. Okay. First of all, the first aspect of Christ is this aspect of him called the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, we're going to make sure we unlock some of these words that at first appear obvious, and most of them are. We're going to take a look at Jesus Christ before he was incarnate, before he was in flesh. First of all, a lot of people, that's a new idea. When I came to Christ, I was uh, 29 years old. I had not been raised in the things of the Lord. I thought Jesus was born on Christmas Day, and he had not existed before that. Just like I was born and did not exist before, I thought that was true of the Lord too. But the scripture reports that that's not true at all. He, before he was in flesh, before he was in Mary's womb and then was birthed and then lived on this earth, he existed. And so he has a pre-existence and he also has an eternal existence, we're going to see. And there is a distinction between those two. And he was up to, up to some stuff. He was active in his pre-existent and eternal condition. The pre-incarnate Christ, first of all, let's make sure pre-existence means that he existed before his birth. And his eternality means that he existed always. Now, we distinguish between the two, for some will hold that Christ lived before he was in Mary, before he was a man, but he has not lived always. For to live always, to be eternal, is to be God. And so some would claim that he was not not God, but very much a, a powerful person in God's economy and existed before Mary But we're going to argue, no, he was preexistent and and he has lived always. We'll see some of these aspects in this passage in John 1. If I was to get a resume and the very first bullet on the resume said creator God, I might take a look at that resume. That's how the Lord Jesus Christ is presented in the scripture. In Colossians, we'll see that he has claimed to full deity. He claims to be equal with God. His throne is forever, according to Hebrews 1. And the most famous of all the passages, oh, the great I am passage in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58. So let's take a look at a few of these verses just to make sure that we see Christ being presented in all his fullness. If there was a section of scripture that I could give you to prove not only the preexistence of Christ, uh, the uh, eternality of Christ, but also the deity of Christ and that he was a creator, it would be this one. 
It's a great little cliff note version of the person of Christ as he was before he was in flesh. John 1.1 sort of writes like uh, Genesis, the way it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, John the Apostle's pet peeve name for Jesus is Halagos, the Word. He's the Word of God incarnate. He's the, the, a living Bible, if you will. He's the full explanation of God, he'll state later. So in the beginning, the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He writes like a lawyer. There's not one thing that could have happened outside of Christ's creative aspects. Not one thing has come into being that has come into being. Very powerful attestation of his preexistence and his eternality. Colossians 2 will say that in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity or the Godhead dwells in bodily form. The invisible infinite has become a man so that we can understand the invisible infinite one. In John 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, invoking another bout with the Pharisees. We'll see another bout coming up here in John 8. Also in Hebrews 1, this is the Father speaking of the Son as to his preexistence and eternality. Notice he says, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, also a claim of deity, your throne is forever and ever. I think the Lord most uh, loved waking up on a Sabbath morning because he knew he could get into some kind of a tussle with the Pharisees that day. For the Pharisees had set that day aside in which you didn't do anything as to the things of God. And in fact, that was the exact opposite of what you were supposed to do. And then he would come along and perform miracles, and the Pharisees would say, you're not supposed to do that. And he would get into theological wrangles with them, and he would, they would say, He's, you're not supposed to do that. This is a great example of one of the many bouts that the Lord had with the Pharisees. Of course, what the Lord and the Pharisees had in common was Abraham. The Jews knew well that their ultimate father was Abraham, from Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the twelve. And then, of course, through Judah, the the word Jew comes, uh, their lineage would have been established. And Jesus speaks of one they both knew of well. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews, knowing that Abraham lived around 2166 B.C., Jesus speaking now in around 30, 31 AD. So 21, 2200 years before, Jesus is talking about an encounter that he and Abraham had had. And the Jews go, wait a minute, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus establishes his preexistence and his eternality in one sentence. He says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Two things. He's saying, I lived before Abraham was born. That's his preexistence. And then in the Greek language, he invokes the eternal name of God. The Greek equivalent would be ego in me. The Old Testament Hebrew version would be Yahweh. He claims to be God by invoking that name. And the Jews well understood it for the verses that follow indicate that this is when they began to plot to kill him. As he claimed to be God. He claimed to be Yahweh in a human form, and it was too much for them to handle. Well, what was this pre-incarnate Christ up to prior to him coming into Mary, being birthed, and then living on planet Earth? He was a creator, we've seen, but he's also a sustainer of his creation in Colossians 1. And then one of my most favorite characters in the whole Bible, the pre-incarnate Christ existed as the angel of Yahweh, 
the angel of the Lord found several times throughout the Old Testament. First of all, let's make sure we see this aspect of his creatorship. We saw in John 1, 1 that he's a creator, for in him all things are created. Colossians 1 says, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things. Notice now, and in him all things consist or are held together. He is active sustainer of the creation that he spoke into being. He's not a distant God who is not interested in normal systems and solar systems. He cares deeply about all those things and is involved on a daily basis in consisting them and holding them together. And then we see him as the angel of the Lord. Now, it's important to distinguish this particular character understood throughout the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. That exact construction, the angel of the Lord, appears several times. We know there are examples of angels in the Old Testament who who give messages, and that's what the word angel means, by the way, is messenger. And they give messages and often tell people about what God is up to or about what God is going to do. This particular character, the angel of the Lord, who I argue is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, identifies himself as God. He invokes and invites worship. Angels are often seen biblically as deflecting worship. Oh, no, no, not me, him. This particular angel, the angel of Yahweh, the image of the invisible God, God in form in the Old Testament, represents the Godhead as deity in this person of the angel of the Lord. The most famous place where he shows up, and this is one of many, is in the burning bush story in Exodus chapter 3. Now we have to employ what's called the law of substitution, for in the second verse we're going to see that the angel of the Lord is introduced, but then we're going to see that the angel of the Lord is in fact God. Notice in verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire. Notice from where? From the midst of a bush. That's where the angel of the Lord is as he first comes on the scene in this little passage. Notice as the passage unfolds now, the identity of the angel of the Lord is that of God. Verses 4 and 5, we see that it is God who calls to Moses from the midst of the bush, the same place where the angel of the Lord was, and then the clincher. He says, Moses, go ahead and take your shoes off, bud, because you're on holy ground. Now, he didn't say bud, but he did say take your shoes off for your own holy ground. He invoked, he invited worship. He reminded Moses that this was a place where God was. And that's clarified most succinctly in the sixth verse. For we see in Exodus 3, 6, from the bush, Moses hears, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of Yahweh. Seen elsewhere, by the way, is doing all sorts of things. He is the one who tells Hagar of Ishmael's birth to her in Genesis 16. He will comfort Hagar after she is expelled from Abraham's camp. He is the one that will stop Abraham from sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22. He will rebuke Israel because of their sin in the book of Judges. He is the caller of Gideon the prophesier of Samson and and his unique role. And he brings a plague as only God can do against Israel as seen in 2 Samuel 24. What was Christ up to before he was in human form? He was always in some kind of form for he is the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. He is the explanation of God. And we see him showing up in this form in the Old Testament. Clearly a a call to deity, clearly the presence of the Lord. Interestingly, 
the angel of the Lord never shows up in the New Testament. After the incarnation, after Christ becomes a man, we never hear of the angel of the Lord again because now the person of Christ is taking on that form and he is representing the Godhead as the person of Jesus Christ and the angel of the Lord is not around. Now the Old Testament, of course, getting us ready for the incarnation, prophesies all sorts of different ways about this unique individual that's going to come our way. I've just arranged them in six major categories just to give us some thought about the literally hundreds of Old Testament direct and indirect and foreshadows of the person of Jesus Christ incarnate. For example, his lineage is first seen in the third chapter of Genesis. He is the long-promised seed of the woman, the one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent because sin has now been involved in the human race, and the serpent was the entree to that sin that Adam and Eve participated in. And then the lineage is further defined that, that he would come through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Judah, and then David. That's why both Matthew and Luke have genealogies showing that both Mary and Joseph were properly linked to David. His birth was miraculously predicted of a virgin and in Bethlehem, just two aspects about that. His life was prophesied remarkably that he would have a forerunner who later came to be John the Baptist. That was first prophesied in Isaiah 40. He would bring good news according to Isaiah 61. He would have a ministry of substitutionary death according to Isaiah 53. He would speak in parables according to Psalm 78. He would come riding in on a donkey according to Zechariah 9. And the most powerful of them all, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, predicts the exact date, March the 30th, 33 AD, in which Jesus Christ would ride into town on a donkey during the week of his triumphal entry, the final week of his life on earth. His death, of course, was prophesied. It was not a surprise. It was prophesied to be a piercing and crushing death, a violent death, according to Isaiah 52 and 3. He would be resurrected, according to Psalm 16, and he would reign marvelously in what is known as the messianic reign of Christ on earth, prophesied throughout the Old Testament. All John does in Revelation 20 is tells us that it lasts a thousand years. But throughout the Old Testament, almost every prophet, but particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah, prophesy of this great coming day of the Lord in which he will rule literally on planet earth. All of these prophecies and many more, of course, make us see that Christ is the exact fulfillment, that Jesus of Nazareth is the one who is authenticated. In fact, all of these prophecies, the probability of just seven of them being fulfilled in any random person is one in 100 billion, 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 billion. 10 to the 38th, if you're taking notes. That's a big number. That's a bad bet to go against that. The person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the perfect fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And then, of course, the prophecy of the incarnation, that Christ, although he existed in the Old Testament and showed up in many different ways, including the angel of the Lord, is now going to come and, and be in human form. He's going to be incarnate. Let's make sure we see that. The idea of Christ in flesh or incarnate. Now it begins to take on some theological meaning. The eternal second person of the Trinity took to himself now an additional nature, humanity. He existed in the form of God, Paul tells us in Philippians, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, emptied himself of that great glory and privilege that he had, 
kept the full form of God and now added the form of a bondservant. God became a man in one person. That's what's known as the incarnation, as he takes on this separate identity. Remember John's little term for for Christ in John 1, the Word? Now we see later, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Later in his first epistle, John will say that the Word lived among us and we beheld his glory. We handled him. We touched him concerning this Word of life. He lived his life with and in John, and it was a powerful thing in his life, and John wrote of it in his first epistle, the word living among us. The image of the invisible God we see in Colossians chapter 1. The prophecies, of course, surrounding his incarnation. The two most famous ones are in Isaiah. Isaiah 9, a child will be born to us. A son will be given. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Elohim, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's a prediction of the God-man. And he would come through a rather unusual means prophesied by the birth of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and and she shall call him Emmanuel. The child is now Emmanuel, God with us, El with us, prophesied. For what reason? To reveal God to us. The invisible infinite took on form and finitude so that we could somehow have a a window into understanding the greatness and grandeur of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Christ also, of course, provides an example for our lives as we uh, mirror and mimic his life as he lived a sinless and perfect life. He was provision of of an effective sacrifice uh, for our sin. He fulfilled the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7 in which uh, it was prophesied that through David and David only, the king of kings would come. We see that he was also sent to destroy the works of the devil. And later, we'll see this in more detail, to be a sympathetic high priest because he was a man. He understood what it was like to be a human being. Now, the incarnation, I want you to think about this. This is a little theological moment we're going to share, is a lasting state for our Lord. It began at his birth, and it continues in his resurrection body forever. As an eternal living memorial of the sacrifice that God made for us, the creator became a creature. He has remained, the person of Christ, has remained incarnate forever. Paul writes in Colossians, he is the image of, or he is rather in him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form, present tense. He wrote that 30 years after Christ's ascension. The man, Christ Jesus, is our mediator today, Paul tells us in Timothy. He sits down at the right hand of the Father in the presence of God, taking uh, visitors of all kind, ruling through and with the Father in bodily form today. When When he left, he was in bodily form. When he comes back in Revelation 19, he's in bodily form. And every indication is that his state of being incarnate is forever, an eternal living memorial, a beautiful picture of of a life that gave for others and was other-minded. We see in Christ, of course, he was also human. We're going to build now. We're going to build from him being human, also being deity, and those coming together in what is known as the hypostatic union. Okay, so the humanity of Christ, let's make sure we understand and appreciate that he was a real man, fully man, yet without sin, but he was a real man. 
He represented us and died for us, and thus he had to be a real man to do so. His birth attests to his humanity. Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in Galatians, born of a, born of a woman born under the law. He lived under the law. He lived a normal human life. He had a true body of flesh and blood. He sweated. He ached. He bled. He hungered. He thirsted, just like you and I. Normal human development, Luke said, he was growing in stature and in the, in the minds and eyes of those that were watching him. He had a human soul and spirit, normal human characteristic. He wept. He felt compassion. He had human names, of course. His name would have been Yeshua ben Yosef. Yeshua, closest to our word, Joshua, son of Joseph. And yet we'll also see that he is God, fully God. Not any kind of of, of form of God that's not other than absolutely full. In fact, the theologians will say that Christ is undiminished deity. He didn't bring just a little bit of God with him. He brought all of God with him. And in him, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And because of his deity and the perfectness of his deity, he is able to bring a sacrifice of infinite value so he could die for all people. The man and God being formed now in one person. His names, of course, that while he was on earth and still today, God, Son of God, Lord, coupled with his human names, we're starting to see this form of both man and God coming together. We see that he receives worship. He does the things that God does. He has attributes and works alike that of God. He's eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He doesn't change. He says, I am the resurrection in John 11. I am the creator and sustainer, according to Colossians 1. He's the forgiver and judge, and he's a miracle worker par excellence. All the things attendant to deity. Notice in Hebrews 1.8, the Father speaking, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, the Father calls the Son, God, is forever and ever. Thomas, the doubter, after he saw the risen Lord, exclaimed these words in John 20, verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. If you're studying Titus with us, we're studying that famous second chapter looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Some manuscripts read, the great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. John 5, 18, he, Jesus, was calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. The New Testament here and many other places makes no bones about it. Jesus Christ is God. It's not an undiminished deity. It is the fullness of God dwelling in perfect humanity. And so the combination of that perfect man and full deity is what is known as the hypostatic union. Hypostatic. There's a word you don't use too much around the office, including mine. We don't talk about this word all that much, but let's make sure we see where it comes from. It's a combo Greek word, hypostasis. And the idea behind hypostasis is the idea, hupo is under, stasis or histemi is to stand. And so it's the idea to stand under something so that it, you provide support and strength, substance and sustenance to it. Watch how that word picture sort of develops as we uh, define this term more clearly. The meaning originally was that of a foundation or a sediment, something that was strong and firm. like something was standing under it, supporting it. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, the idea later was that of substance, even existence, reality. 
The word appears five times, by the way, in the Greek Testament, the idea uh, found in Hebrews chapter 11, for example. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That word in English, assurance, is this word hypostasis, the idea that something is sure and strong. And so the idea of the hypostatic union is that God and man and the person of Jesus Christ really exist or a full existing substantival existence that's real. And there's strength and solidity, assurance in that fact. The person of Jesus Christ seen in the hypostatic union is really the two natures of Christ are inseparably united, notice, without mixture or loss of separate identity. Without mixture or loss of separate identity. Fully God, fully man. He remains forever the God-man, fully God, fully man, two distinct natures in one person forever. An eternal living memorial of the wonderful work of Jesus Christ on earth that we can enjoy and understand God forever through him. And that's why our passage in Philippians from last week, thus the launching pad, hopefully makes a little bit more sense to us now. We see him in a little bit uh, brighter light, uh, a little bit more grand and glorious in his person. Although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself. The Greek word for empty is kino, and so you'll hear that called the kenosis passage. He emptied himself of that glory that he had with the Father and took on the form of a bondservant. God, invisible and infinite, became a man. It's as if we had invented ants and they had rebelled against us. And the only way that we could communicate to ants in the best way to, would be to become an ant. How limiting that would be to be hanging around in little tunnels and pulling little grass stalks. And, you know, your life's work would be to travel like a hundred yards. Things that we can do very easily and so quickly. God, how much more, the argument would go, has, uh, has done that for us. Notice what he did. Notice the idea behind his humiliation. He was found uh, in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the other minded aspects of Philippians 2, consider others more important than yourself. Here's the perfect example of God, the creator, for the sake of his creature, became a man and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The earthly life of Christ, of course, we're going to be a little bit more familiar with this. Uh, first of all, the, his life certainly authenticates, like those Old Testament prophecies, that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew alone has 129 different references to Messiah and his Messiahship, all of which are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Half of the Gospels, if you're a red-letter guy or gal, half of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are going to be red letters. He is clearly the central character of the Gospels, and he is the central character of the commentaries that Paul and Peter will later write. Of course, his presence on earth also reveals his authority. His most famous sermon was Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. At the end of that sermon, Matthew makes this statement, that Jesus was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. That term authority will be crucial in Matthew's argument, for he will later go on to say, Jesus will in in the 28th chapter, that all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The authority of God resting upon Christ, for in fact, he was God. The works of Christ, of course, authenticate this individual as God and as the long-awaited Messiah. We have 35 different miracle accounts in all four Gospels, plus several references to Mass 
healings. And all of the miracles show that he has the ability to be over nature. He is supernatural. He has the ability to calm storms or heal the sick and and raise the dead, one of his final miracles. Of course, the rejection of Christ and his kingdom that was offered and then rejected now gives us a preview of what's about to come. Because the rejection, it's now being held in abeyance, this great kingdom that will forthcome as the rejection of Christ. The death of Christ was one of substitutionary death. Of all the verses in the New Testament, I think the, the verse that ties the Old and New Testament together best is John one twenty nine. As John the Baptist looks and sees his cousin Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the Old Testament imagery of the sacrificial system and years and years and decades and centuries and millennia of approaching God through sacrifice and the blood of bulls and goats is now all placed on the Lamb of God, God himself in human form, the one who came to take away the sin of the world. Peter will make the same statement a little bit more clearly for our purposes. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The death of Christ also procured redemption. He bought us, purchased us with a price. And Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are to glorify God with our body. Why? Because we've been bought with a price. We're not our own. The death of Christ provided propitiation, just a fancy word for satisfaction. The father was satisfied with the work of the son. And as a result, he released the debt that we had and thus the forgiveness of sin that is ours through Christ. We can also be declared righteous with the Father. Justified is the fancy biblical word down here. We say, get saved. When one gets saved, one is made right with the Lord. And as a result of that, justification has been procured by the Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ, however, is the the coup de grace. It's the absolute most important moment in history when it comes to biblical Christianity. All of Christianity rests on the historicity of the resurrection. It validates it like none other. It also indicates that it was the Father's acceptance of the Son's work, the forerunner of the sending of the Holy Spirit. For the resurrection of Christ and its proof is undeniable. We first of all know that it was foretold by Old Testament prophets, Psalm 16 just being one of them, Christ himself told Peter that he was going to be raised from the dead after going to Jerusalem and being crucified, and Peter would have nothing to hear of it. That's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, in Matthew 16. The same individual Peter who just a few verses earlier had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, was the one that had to be pushed behind because he was not accepting the mission of the Lord to go to Jerusalem, be crucified, and to be raised from the dead. Christ predicted his resurrection time after time. The empty tomb, a wonderful attestation and proof of the resurrection of Christ. The linen wrappings that we see in John 20. Over 517 different people on several different occasions saw the risen Lord. It's a historical fact. It happened. The transformed lives of the disciples. They were then emboldened because of what they saw at that resurrection Sunday. They got it finally. And and their lives were never the same. 
We meet on Sunday mornings to commemorate the resurrection. They used to meet on Saturday. The resurrection, of course, is the reason we meet on Sunday. And the resurrection, like I'm doing now and like others have done for 2,000 years, is the stuff, the subject matter of many sermons found throughout the Scripture as well as uh, the body of Christ and its life. The resurrection of Christ in Matthew 28, He is not here. He is risen, just as He said. Resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, so powerfully here. If Christ has not been raised, you think about what he's saying, the importance of the resurrection. If Christ be not raised, our preaching is vain, your faith is in vain, your faith is worthless. And if those aren't bad, this is the worst. We're still in our sins, for the Lord has not accepted the death of Christ for us, if Christ be not raised. It's that crucial. It's that important. After he was raised, of course, he ascended. Acts 1 tells us that he was lifted up while they were looking, and then also says that he'll come back in just the same way. We also see that the ascension of Christ now will end his earthly ministry. And in that time of humiliation, in which his glory was veiled, as you see in Philippians 2, and he now is the first fruits, the first of many resurrected human beings that will be in heaven for all eternity. Holy Spirit was now being able to be sent. We enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling in each of us if we know the Lord. His offices that he currently enjoys is that of prophet, for he explained God like no other. He is a priest also, one who continually witnesses or represents us before the Lord, for he understands our weaknesses. Hebrews 4 says, he was tempted in all things, yet without sin. There is no sin that he has succumbed to. So he understands the nth degree of the temptation and is able to look and sympathize and say, I know what it is like, what you're going through. He is the king. He is our sovereign. Our over-reigner is what that word means. He has the right to rule and he will come back as the long-awaited and promised king of kings. The present ministry of the Lord is up to a few things. Let's remind ourselves, be encouraged by the fact that he's preparing a place for us, according to John 14, and he says, if I'm preparing a place for you and I go to do that, then I'm coming back and will receive you again into myself. He's building his church, according to Matthew 16. He is also praying for us, according to Romans 8, that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He is producing fruit in believers, according to John 15. Notice how that passage ends. He bears much fruit, for apart from me, You can do nothing. The abiding nature of us with Christ as he produces fruit in and through us. And finally, sort of the drum roll is what's he going to do? What's he preparing to do in the future? There's a couple of things that are of note. First of all, he's a resurrector par excellence. I am the resurrection and the life, he tells us in John 11. And he's got some more resurrecting to do. He's going to raise the dead. We're going to see at the rapture of the church, as the church age believers will be raised. I take it prior to the tribulation period. At the end of that seven-year tribulation period, he will raise Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs from their sleep. After the millennial reign, unbelievers will be raised and judged at the great white throne judgment. The judgment of, of Christ is also an aspect of his future work. He will judge believers at what is known as the judgment seat of Christ during the seven-year tribulation time on earth in heaven. We will stand before the Bema, or judgment seat of Christ. It's not a heaven or hell judgment. It's rather a reward or loss of reward type of judgment. And also at the end of the millennial kingdom, unbelievers will be raised and assigned their place in the lake of fire as Christ the judge will be the ruler of that great white throne judgment. He will come back for that long-awaited messianic reign of Christ 
and rule as a benevolent dictator one day on planet Earth for a thousand years centered in and around Jerusalem and, and what our hearts have always cried for is someone who loves us and tells us what to do will be on Earth watching out for us. The return of Christ, as I tried to imagine it, of course, is, is seen in many movies and pictures, but I'm a literary guy and I love what John says in the vision that he recorded in Revelation 19. Notice when he says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His name is called the word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The great and glorious return of Jesus Christ. It's been our privilege this morning to just think through a few of the dimensions of Christ, touching upon a few Hopefully expanding not only our knowledge of him, certainly, but our, more importantly, our appreciation of this great and glorious being. If it's a new thought to you, Jesus foresaw it here in Luke 24, where he says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me, Jesus speaking, in the law of Moses, in the Psalms, and in the prophets must be fulfilled. Jesus is found from Genesis to Revelation. And then he says he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. If you've seen Christ today in a new light, maybe for the first time, I invite you to ponder this picture. This is is Rembrandt's self-portrayal of the crucifixion. That's Rembrandt there in the middle. And of course, usually in art, the thing that you want the audience's eye to go to is in the center. And normally, of course, in most crucifixion images, the cross would be in the center. But Rembrandt put himself in the center to remind us, as he learned, that he and we put him on that cross. It was our sin that brought the breach between us and God. And so that the great, invisible, infinite creator took on human form to die for the creature. He existed in the form of God, but also became known as one who existed in the form of a bondservant so that he might be obedient to the point of death. If you're coming to realize that maybe for the first time this morning, I invite you to consider the claims of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins and rose from the dead. And anyone by simple faith in that fact might enjoy eternal relationship with him as a result. Jesus Christ is the one that we have portrayed this morning. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And just for a while, we have beheld his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for opportunity to study the scripture, we ask you to open our minds now in the ensuing weeks and months as we might consider these things again. For those still searching for you, Lord, will you be ever so kind to reveal yourself through your spirit, open their minds to the things of Christ. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? I've never gotten over that, Lord. I pray I never do. I pray that we might... uh, Now that we've had opportunity to behold your glory, be men and women of the book, men and women who are proud to wear the name Christian, for we are of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.